A special thanks goes out to the folks at Anchor.fm for bringing you this podcast. Coming to you almost live from our studios in New York, this is Tom Reads Your Story. Stay tuned for readings from social media and other spoken word projects. Join me right now. I'm your host, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. Hello, everyone. I'm Tom Zania. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. We'll have your words from social media and much more right after this word from audible.com. Jeff Corey was a great Hollywood character man who became blacklisted in 1951. In the book Improvising Out Loud, My Life Teaching Hollywood How to Act, Corey recounts his extraordinary story. Among the actors who would soon fill his classes were James Dean, Kirk Douglas, Jane Fonda, Rob Reiner, Jack Nicholson, and Leonard Nimoy. In 1962, when the blacklist ended, Corey was one of the industry's first trailblazers to seamlessly reboot his acting career and secure roles in some of the classic films of the era, including Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, True Grit, and Little Big Man, in which he starred as the infamous Wild Bill Hickok. His memoir, which he wrote with his daughter Emily Corey, provides a unique and personal perspective on the man whose teaching inspired some of Hollywood's biggest names to star in the roles that made them famous. Improvising Out Loud, My Life Teaching Hollywood How to Act, written by Jeff Corey with Emily Corey. Listen to this incredible book by visiting audible.com. And we are back. So, let's talk a little bit about what happened last week. <laughs> I made a few mistakes in editing last week, and uh, part of it I can blame myself for. I take full res- part responsibility. And the other half, I got to blame, you know who, Spotify. The whole idea of working with Spotify about supplying music and, you know, waiting 24 hours for their approval and uh, the fact that they're very unforgiving if I make a mistake, uh, it's just not working out. And I'm going to try very, very hard to not use them in the future Uh, as is today's podcast. Um, I think you'll like today's podcast. We've got some very good things from Facebook. Uh, One thing is from Brooks, who supplied a New York Times article about the 100th anniversary of the massacre that took place in Tulsa years ago. of, of which many African-Americans were murdered. Uh, and so, or as, as they would say on Fox News, there was a riot there. <laughs> Complete bullshit. Now, there, there was a massacre there many years ago, 100 years ago, I believe, is the anniversary. 
And uh, it's a very good article from New York Times that will be first. After that, we have something from an LGBTQ person basically venting about uh, loving the sinner but hating the sin. Uh, a very interesting little uh, posting there from Facebook. And after that, you're going to hear something of mine. Uh, it is a review that I posted in Facebook, but is now in my blog, Random Notes. And it's a review of the film version of Sweeney Todd, which I think many of you have seen, or at least have heard of. Uh, and I think that's a, a very good review that um, you'll want to listen to. And lastly, we have something from Melody, Melody Gardot's site, Facebook page, about her recording of a great song that I'm sure you've heard of called Moon River. Now, Moon River is, has, of course, is, is an iconic uh, American songbook number that's been done by all the famous singers like Sinatra and, of course, Tony Bennett. And I think Tony Bennett's done it, but many others have done it as well. And Melody Gardot's sultry voice uh, will sing this. You won't hear the song, but it's basically uh, a little about her deciding to, to do the song. Uh, in a recording session. And that's going to be it for today, but let's start out uh, with the first um, the first item, the article in the New York Times that Tom Hanks wrote. I think you'll like this. Tom Hanks on Tulsa by Brooks. Not that a liberal voice from liberal Hollywood will do anything to change the minds of fearful Republicans. Tom Hanks, You Should Learn the Truth About the Tulsa Race Massacre. By Tom Hanks, The New York Times, June 4, 2021. I consider myself a lay historian who talks way too much at dinner parties, leading with questions like, do you know that the Erie Canal is the reason Manhattan became the economic center of America? Some of the work I do is making historically based entertainment. Did you know our second president once defended in court British soldiers who fired on and killed colonial Bostonians and got most of them off? By my recollection, four years of my education, including studying American history, fifth and eighth grades, two semesters in high school, three quarters at a community college. Since then, I've read history for pleasure and watched documentary films as a first option. Many of those works and those textbooks were about white people and white history. Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. were those who accomplished much in spite of slavery, segregation, and institutional injustices in American society. But for all my study, I never read a page of any school history book about how, in 1921, a mob of white people burned down a place called Black Wall Street, killed as many as 300 of its black citizens, and displaced thousands of black Americans who lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma. My experience was common. 
History was mostly written by white people about white people like me, while the history of black people, including the horrors of Tulsa, was too often left out. Until relatively recently, the entertainment industry, which helps shape what is history and what is forgotten, did the same. That includes projects of mine. I knew about the attack on Fort Sumter, Custer's Last Stand, and Pearl Harbor, but did not know of the Tulsa massacre until last year, thanks to an article in the New York Times. Instead, in my history classes, I learned that Britain's Stamp Act helped lead to the Boston Tea Party, that we were a free people because the Declaration of Independence said all men are created equal, that the Whiskey Rebellion started over a tax on whiskey, that the Articles of Confederation and the Alien and Sedition Acts were cockeyed. Rightfully, Sacco and Vanzetti, Teddy Roosevelt's Bull Moose Party, and the Wright brothers had their time in my classes. Our textbooks told of the Louisiana Purchase, the Johnstown, Pennsylvania Flood, the Great San Francisco Earthquake, and George Washington Carver's development of hundreds of products from the common good bird. But Tulsa was never more than a city on the prairie. The Oklahoma land rush got some paragraphs in one of those years, but the 1921 burning out of the black population that lived there was never mentioned. Nor, I have learned since, was anti-black violence on large and small scales, especially between the end of Reconstruction and the victories of the Civil Rights Movement. Nor have I learned since was anti-black violence on large and small scales. There was nothing on the Slocum massacre of black residents in Texas by an all-white mob in 1910, or the red summer of white supremacist terrorism in 1919. Many students like me were told that the lynching of black Americans was tragic, but not that these public murders were commonplace and often lauded by local papers and law enforcement. For a white kid living in the white neighborhoods of Oakland, California, my city in the 1960s and 70s looked integrated and diverse, but often felt tense and polarized, as was evident on many an AC transit bus. The division between white America and black America seemed to be as solid as any international boundary, even in one of the most integrated cities in the nation. Bret Hart Junior High and Skyline High School had Asian, Latino, and black students, but those schools were mostly white. This did not seem to be the case in the other public high schools in town. We had lessons on the Emancipation Proclamation, the Ku Klux Klan, Rosa Parks' daring heroism, and her common decency, and even the death of Crispus Attucks in the Boston Massacre. Parts of American cities had been aflame at points since the Watts riots in 1965, and Oakland was the home of the Black Panthers and the Vietnam War-era draftee induction center. So history was playing out before our very eyes in our hometown. The issues were myriad, the solutions theoretical, the lessons few, the headlines continuous. The truth about Tulsa and the repeated violence by some white Americans against black Americans was systematically ignored, perhaps because it was regarded as too honest, too painful a lesson for our young white ears. So our predominantly white schools didn't teach it. Our mass appeal works of historical fiction didn't enlighten us. And my chosen industry didn't take on the subject in films and shows until recently. 
It seems white educators and school administrators, if they even know of the Tulsa massacre, for some surely did not, omitted the volatile subject for the sake of the status quo, placing white feelings over black experience, literally black lives in this case. How different would perspectives be had we all been taught about Tulsa in 1921, even as early as the fifth grade? Today, I find the omission tragic, an opportunity missed, a teachable moment squandered. When people hear about systematic racism in America, just the use of those words draws the ire of those white people who insist that since July 4th, 1776, we have all been free, we were all created equally, that any American can become president and catch a cab in midtown Manhattan, no matter the color of our skin. That, yes, American progress toward justice for all can be slow, but remains relentless. Tell that to the century-old survivors of Tulsa and their offspring, and teach the truth to the white descendants of those in the mob that destroyed Black Wall Street. Today, I think historically-based fiction entertainment must portray the burden of racism in our nation for the sake of the art form's claims to verisimilitude and authenticity. Until recently, the Tulsa Race Massacre was not seen in movies and TV shows, thanks to several projects currently streaming like Watchmen and Lovecraft County. This is no longer the case. Like other historical documents that map our cultural DNA, they will reflect who we really are and help determine what is our full history, what we must remember. Should our schools now teach the truth about Tulsa? Yes, and they should also stop the battle to whitewash curriculums to avoid discomfort for students. America's history is messy, but knowing that makes us a wiser and stronger people. 1921 is the truth, a portal to our shared paradoxical history. An American black Wall Street was not allowed to exist, was burned to ashes. More than 20 years later, World War II was won, despite institutionalized racial segregation. More than 20 years after that, the Apollo missions put 12 men on the moon while others were struggling to vote and the publishing of the Pentagon Papers showed the extent of our elected officials' willingness to systematically lie to us. Each of these lessons chronicles our quest to live up to the promise of our land, to tell truths that, in America, are meant to be held as self-evident. Tom Hanks is an actor and filmmaker whose projects include historical works like Band of Brothers, The Pacific, and John Adams and documentaries about America from the 1960s to the 2000s. Love the Sinner by Christina So, I need to vent. I have seen some beautiful posts the past couple of days in some Latter-day Saint social media groups wishing our LGBTQ siblings a happy Pride Month. They talked about how important it is to love one another. Inevitably, there are always comments that acknowledge we need to love, and then they add a but, or some other such phrase such as, well, we are all sinners. Love the sinner, hate the sin. This phrase just needs to be retired. 
Literally, no one feels loved when they hear it. When I drop my kids off at school, I don't say, I love you, but I hate your sins. I just end it at, I love you. It just needs to end there. We can love them, but I don't need to condone their lifestyle or agenda. Honestly, the only agenda many of them have is to live a life that is authentic for them. They want to find love and share a life with someone, like pretty much what everyone else wants. I don't even like the term lifestyle. I don't refer to straight couples as living a heterosexual lifestyle. It's just life. Families are under attack. We need to defend the family. Yes, there are plenty of things that destroy families. I don't consider marriage equality to be one of them. Honestly, LGBTQ families are also under attack by a lot of Christian families. That is incredibly sad to me. LGBTQ people need to come unto Christ. A lot of people may not realize that many LGBTQ folks have a deep commitment to and love for Christ. I'm even talking about those who are in same-sex relationships or who have transitioned. Some may say, but that's impossible. They can't have a relationship with God if they are choosing these sinful lifestyles. How can you be so certain of that? Are you a part of their spiritual relationships and able to receive revelation for them? It's a false dichotomy to assume that you can either love God or live an authentic LGBTQ life. You can have both. I wish we could all just learn to love better and truly listen without putting conditions on that love. I know some of my friends will disagree with this post, and I would have disagreed with it a few years ago as well. I was pretty conditioned to think LGBTQ people were spiritually weak and worldly. I was so certain that I knew what was best for them. I need to repent for that. A lot of my thoughts came from a place of fear. I hope that my LGBTQ friends know that they are dearly loved and some of the most incredible and courageous people I've ever met. I hope others will eventually learn to see you as I believe God sees you. From the blog... Random Notes Close Shave A Review of the Film Musical Sweeney Todd By Tom Zania May 2019 After becoming accustomed to Stephen Sondheim's 1979 Broadway masterpiece, I wasn't quite sure it would ever make it to the screen for a variety of reasons. I had suspected such a violent piece to have trouble being accepted by general Broadway audiences, but... Sondheim rarely writes for them. Most of Stephen Sondheim's work has an enormous cult following, myself included, but he's been highly criticized throughout his career nonetheless. Aside from West Side Story and a song or two in Dick Tracy, Sondheim was never known for being a successful provider to Hollywood. Films like A Little Night Music and A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum landed with a resounding thud. This will change with the release of the film version of his gruesome, yet most operatically beautiful piece, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. 
As I have written in a previous review, transferring a Broadway musical to the screen, especially the silver screen, can be and often is a monumentally challenging task. Many have failed miserably. What those filmmakers ultimately forgot, or either failed to understand, is that they must transcend the original source material, not simply provide a way to cheapen the live theater experience. It takes the right director for the project. Recent films like The Phantom of the Opera, Rent, and Chicago faithfully honored that rule and were great movies. However, films like Camelot, Brigadoon, A Chorus Line, The Producers, and many others did not. Sweeney definitely does, and with a plum, since the perfect marriage of director and story happened early on. The story is that of Benjamin Barker, who becomes Sweeney Todd, who is sent away on a trumped-up charge by a certain Judge Turpin, played by Alan Rickman in an incredible standout performance, who only wishes to have his way with Todd's beautiful wife and daughter. With the help of a young sailor, Anthony, Todd escapes prison and takes refuge in a small pie shop run by Mrs. Lovett, played with a light comic touch of vulnerability by the wonderful Helena Bottom Carter, to take the revenge he feels he so rightly deserves. Depp is excellent as Todd, singing well enough and sporting deeply darkened eyes that pierce maddeningly at the world throughout the film. Whether or not he will be an Oscar contender for it remains to be seen. Borat's Sasha Baron Cohen also stands out as the infamous Barbara Pirelli, a con man who later tries to blackmail Todd with surprising results. Later, Mrs. Lovett has an idea that would keep Todd close to her, since she loves him, and make them both well provided for financially, the results of which provide the drama, violence, bloodshed, which there is plenty of in this movie, and its tragic ending. The cast of non-Broadway principals provided work extremely well together to bring that out, as well as Burton's and subsequently Sondheim's vision. Memorable numbers include By the Beautiful Sea, These Are My Friends, Pretty Women, and Not While I'm Around. Hollywood wunderkind Tim Burton directs here and is typically brilliant. After a gorily effective five minutes of opening titles, Burton introduces us to a nightmarish, dark, and filthy London, more insidious and corrupt than that of Charles Dickens or Jack the Ripper. He uses expert digital filmmaking to the nth degree to help us understand the reasoning of such a gruesomely violent story. One can easily recall Burton's flair for the visual in his great films like Edward Scissorhands, Mars Attacks, a favorite of mine, and Ed Wood, to name a scant few. It all comes into play here, and Burton pulls out all the stops. He honors Sondheim's score throughout, but cuts small pieces when necessary. One change he makes should be noted by diehard fans of Sondheim's work before they see it, the powerful choral narration that pervades the stage version by the ensemble is non-existent here, and I missed hearing it. It's understandable as to why. I believe Burton was trying to shrink Todd's world, no ensemble, only principles, so that we feel trapped within too small a world, feeling its atmosphere of danger. More a Hollywood release than a Christmas one, and definitely not for the squeamish, The Very Bloody Sweeney is a great film by the perfect filmmaker for the material. 
Sporting Burton's hard-hitting style, it hits home Sondheim's ultimate message, that none of us are perfect, and that revenge and corruption can ultimately destroy us all. Here's one of my favorites, sung by one of my favorites. suggested the song Moon River. Now, I tend to run away from really popular songs, and he started describing what he wanted to do with the song. I was saying to these guys, I really want to get Melody to sing Moon River, and, 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 and to, 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 to kind of, in, in the version that we do, sort of take it back to the Audrey Hepburn version, you know, and, and I leaned over to Al and I said, have you ever heard Audrey Hepburn's version of Moon River, and he said, yeah, I did it. Wow, seriously? <laughs> that was the first album I got nominated for um, a Grammy. The thing that I had in my mind was that you start off with Anthony, just the two of you, and these guys join in, but but very, very spare and kind of If you haven't already, if you have not done so already, get some of Melody Gardot's recordings. She is terrific. I first heard of Melody Gardot while listening to Jonathan Schwartz's show on WNYC. He has since retired, by the way, but that's another story. Uh, but the first time I heard her voice, I thought, I got to hear more of this. She is just wonderful. That brings us to the end of yet another episode of Tom Reads Your Story. If you enjoyed your visit today, please tell your friends, because we're always looking for new ones. Be sure to email me at TomReadYourStory at Yahoo.com if you have questions or comments about the show. Don't ask me what I think of the Knicks or, you know, baseball scores or any of that stuff. This is just if you have questions or comments about the show. And as always, thanks, Anchor.fm, for the opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Until next time, stay safe, everyone. Bye now. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, or audiobook project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. We hope you visit us again soon for another episode of Tom Reads Your Story.